Hi guys, uh, this is my podcast uh, talking to UIC history faculty about their interest in current events. Obviously, this week, uh, week two, I have a uh, visiting lecturer Jeff Shirky. Uh, Jeff, you could introduce yourself. Hi everyone, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Jeff Shirky. I'm a visiting lecturer here in the history department, and I. Um, particularly specialize in U.S. labor history and the history of, of work, the working class. Okay. Uh, with the work, with, in regards to the working class and history, uh, the working class is a pretty dense history, and it even connects to today. For example, how we have John Deere workers on strike. We have some uh, teaching assistants uh, in some universities threatening to go on strike. You also have some faculty, some university faculty, and a lot of media outlets are kind of ignoring the fact and there's very few good labor reporters today. Uh, but yeah, labor history is definitely a topic that is still relevant today, but it's, uh, but with labor unions where generally union membership has gone down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, over the last 50 years or so, the labor movement has been in decline. That means like union membership has been, Shrinking um, in the 1950s, union membership um, in the in the private sector of the United States was around 35 percent. This means that almost about one in three workers in the U.S. unionized. That was the highest it ever got. And then now today, it's only that number is only about six percent of workers in the private sector unionized. Um, so. And you've also seen in the last 30 years or so kind of related to the decline of the labor movement, how real wages have been stagnating, um, not keeping up with productivity. So people have been working harder and harder, but not seeing um, their standard of living increase along with productivity. Um, so not seeing the rewards or the benefits from working harder and harder. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've seen the graph, but it's something like uh, two. We, uh, my generation, or people currently working right now, are two to three times more productive, and they're still getting paid around what my grandparents were getting paid, which is kind of insane. How we can be working harder, and we're we're not getting uh, just compensation for our work. Obviously, it's kind of it's kind of uh, very strange. Yeah, there's sort of a, I mean, there's a very um, strong belief, and it's, I would say, a myth in the United States that um, that wages and benefits, um, you know, the compensation that people get for their work, that it's all determined sort of naturally by the market and by supply and demand, and that everyone gets a fair return for what their work, for what their labor is worth, but uh, like I said, I think that's actually a myth. And when you study the history of work, you kind of see clearly that it is a myth, that really it's a question of power. And when the employers and you know business owners and corporations have the power to basically do whatever they want, they're going to pay their workers as low, you know, a, a, as minimum, minimal amount of uh, compensation as they can possibly get away with. But on the other hand, if workers are organized and if they can exhibit some collective strength, which is traditionally what they're able to do through unions and through the labor movement, they can actually um, win not only higher wages, but other kinds of benefits, um, whether it's health care or paid time off, paid leave, um, safer working conditions, um, as well as like just basic grievance procedures at work or, or protections from being fired arbitrarily and um, all, all kinds of uh, um, Yeah, that's very interesting. I think one thing uh, corporations are trying to do to minimize organized labor is uh, the gig economy, how you give uh, people the perception that they're their own boss. Oh, you're your own boss. Uh, when reality, the algorithm is watching you. Well, before you would have uh, a boss, you might not like your boss, but at least he's not a robot tracking your every 
tracking your every move and they don't have to provide health health care benefits and they could say you're making 15 to 17 dollars an hour but once you have your gas expenses all your other expenses that you have to take care of car insurance you're you're not making that much i've seen it with like doordash and lyft uber these people are making like five to six dollars an hour which is kind of crazy it's very beneficial for a lot of these corporations to have the gig economy and not have people organize and not have people organize or hire them in the traditional way. Yeah. Um, that's a great point. And well said the, um, you know, in the 20th century, starting with the like new deal in the 1930s, with Franklin Roosevelt and um, continuing, you know, for several decades, a lot of the, the, the major, Protections and gains and victories for working people, um, both in the law and through through union organizing, um, was all premised on the the idea of you know someone being of being an employee, uh, legally speaking, that you work um, full time, you know, forty hours a week for a particular company, and that company is responsible for providing certain benefits and protections for you as the employee. And as an employee, you have certain legal rights um, in the actual law. And what we've seen in the early 21st century is getting employers able, like you said, and companies able to get around this by just saying, well, you're not an employee, legally speaking, you're, you're an independent contractor, or you're self-employed, you know, that's like the gig economy. So then all of those laws and um, um, victories and protections and benefits that workers manage to win in the 20th century suddenly become irrelevant if they can just sort of sidestep the whole issue and say, you're not an employee, this is not an employer-employee relationship for your own boss. So therefore, um, all of these... Uh, various benefits protections don't apply to you. And there's also that added kind of ideological dimension um, that you kind of mentioned that um, when people are, you know, they're told you're your own boss, this is a great opportunity, you have flexibility. Um, it, it can, not, it doesn't always do this, but it can serve to kind of turn these workers off to the idea of uh, organizing or forming a union or making demands um, because they start to believe, in a way, some of the propaganda. Um, I think a lot of workers see right through this, especially gig workers, uh, Uber drivers, um, among many others, um, Instacart uh, workers, you know, people like that. They More and more, they're understanding that, no, they really are actually workers. They, they are employees, and they're just being cheated out of all kinds of basic protections that they uh, that they normally would have if they were considered employees. Yeah, that distinction between employee and being a contractor, you're trying to walk that thin line and you're trying to effectively win a game like Monopoly effectively and try to make as much money as possible. And often that's at the expense of your workers. And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? That's something for the worker to decide. It's obviously not a good thing for the worker but for the business owner, it's in his best interest to pay them as low as possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously, we also have some union organizing uh, going on even in, in the United States, even as labor is, organized labor is declining with uh, Amazon. I know the recent Alabama warehouse union vote failed. And there's also an effort from the Teamsters. Uh, the Teamsters are very influential with UPS, and they're kind of frustrated with uh, Amazon increasing the standard for delivery, the two-day, the one-day delivery. Mm -hmm. They're kind of getting frustrated with that because it's making their workers have to work a lot harder. So they are trying to attempt to unionize Amazon, and I'm not 100% sure if they're going to be successful or not, obviously. But I think the Teamsters have the best shot at taking on Amazon. I don't know what your thoughts are on the Teamsters and Amazon and Amazon unionizing. Yeah, that's a really big, you know, a really big topic. Um, happy to talk about. 
um, and Amazon is kind of, a, you know, a, um, at least right now, it's sort of the um, a, a great example, quintessential example of kind of 21st century labor and 21st century capitalism um, as this massive, massive corporation. It's tied to like, you know, tech and the Internet. Um, it's also tied like logistic the whole logistics industry of being able to bring products often you know cheaply made products in made made in china or made somewhere in asia that shipped through global the global supply chain to the united states and then distribute that out um to people to consumers um as rapidly and as cheaply as possible um walmart kind of um perfected that that logistics system or innovated that kind of logistics system. And now, and, you know, Walmart for a long time has been the um, kind of primary uh, major um, employer uh, in the private sector, employing the most workers. And now Amazon has kind of over the last few years has been challenging Amazon has been challenging Walmart um, buying uh, whole foods and, and so on and so forth. Amazon is really like at, in a lot of ways at the heart of the modern capitalist economy. And if you can unionize a company like Amazon, that is seen by many people um, in the labor movement and, and people in the corporate world, that would be, you know, like a, a game changer. That would be a really um, major milestone if, you know, and, and it would mark a resurgence of the labor movement if a company like Amazon could be unionized. So uh, there have been over the years, various attempts to try to unionize Amazon or organize different kinds of organizing, just like there also has been in Walmart and McDonald's and a lot of the other big, huge corporations, of, you know, modern times, but those efforts have always failed. Um, and like you mentioned earlier this year, there was a, um, union election, uh, an election by workers to decide whether or not they would unionize at a Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. And this was led by the uh, retail, wholesale, and department store union, RWU. Um, and Amazon, you know, the uh, Part of the, the challenge here for unions is that the labor law in the United States really is designed now to benefit employers. So Amazon, in the run-up to this union election where workers would be voting yes or no if they wanted to unionize, Amazon was able, had the right to basically bombard workers with all kinds of anti-union propaganda, a lot of misleading information about how, you know, you're you're going to be paying all this money in dues and you're going to be losing money. Um, you know, they were able to put anti-union advertisements, even in the bathrooms um, at the, at the warehouse and, um, and basically able to intimidate the workers into believing that if they voted yes um, to unionize that they might end up being fired for it. Um, so it wasn't really a huge surprise to me and a lot of other people who've been paying attention to the labor movement, that that election didn't succeed. But like you said, um, another union, the Teamsters, which traditionally the Teamsters union has been the biggest and strongest within the world of like delivery drivers, truck drivers, warehouses. Um, they, over the last few months, have been saying that they're going to make it their mission to try to unionize Amazon, which is a really ambitious kind of goal, but they are um, a pretty strong, powerful union in this industry of warehouses and, and delivery. Um, they already represent, yes, drivers, unionized through the Teamsters as well as, well as other companies. And yeah, um, Amazon, because it's non-union, um, and they don't have to negotiate with their workers and they don't have to you know, provide any concessions. They can just company, just do whatever it wants. It means they're sort of driving down standards in this industry and it's affecting other companies like UPS and other 
delivery drivers. And so this is sort of hurting the standard of living, not only of the Amazon workers themselves, but other workers um, in, in this industry. So it's a big, um, it's a big deal for the Teamsters to want to try to address this. And um, I don't think, you know, we shouldn't expect that they're going to be able to unionize Amazon overnight. It's going to have to be a long-term campaign. There's probably, and maybe we could talk about this too, there's probably going to have to be changes in, in the labor law um, in this country um, to make it easier to be able to unionize. Um, there are attempts right now in Congress to try to change labor laws. Um, and that, that it really that can't be underestimated aspect because you know various polls recent polls by like Gallup and other polling companies have shown that majorities of Americans support unions you know it's usually like 56 60 percent of Americans are pro-union and yet as I said at the beginning only like six percent of un of workers uh, in the private sector are unionized so you have you know, 56, 60% of workers saying unions are good, but only 6% actually have a union. How do you account for that? A big way you can account for it is laws and the legal barriers able to form a union. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting with the union bar barriers with the PRO Act. The PRO Act is the major union piece mm -hmm. of legislation that is being considered and, um, uh, I don't know, um, looking at Congress, the makeup of Congress right now, I think it's going to be very difficult to get any reform, any really progressive reform to get passed, obviously, for the labor movement. And then another thing I've obviously noticed is there's a lot of people who are socially conservative, obviously. I remember my one friend pointed out in Ben Shapiro's Facebook post there, he posted some anti-union stuff like, oh, unions are bad. And a lot of the people commented, like, uh, I'm in a union right now. I get so many benefits while the non-union people don't get those same benefits. They're paid a lot less. Uh, I think Ben's obviously lying here. He's being bad faith. A lot of the a lot of the people are seeing through that. So the, so they support unions. So it was it was very interesting to see people who are hardcore Ben Shapiro people people to say, yeah, my union actually helps me out. And it's not something. Uh, it's not. So, it's not something that Ben says they'll take my money and they don't represent me in any way and they don't give me better wages. So I just thought that was like very interesting to see how a lot of conservatives, uh, maybe they'll be socially conservative, are actually pro union. Yeah. So there's. I want to address both things that you brought up. You mentioned the pro act, and just to make sure everyone who's you know listening listening to this understands what that is. That's the protect pro as in protecting the right to organize a PRO pro act, which is a proposed legislation in Congress to reform labor laws, essentially to make it a little easier for workers to be able to form unions, to take away, to make it harder for um, corporations and companies to violate labor law. And the House of Representatives has already passed the PRO Act, but like you said, in the Senate, which is you know 50-50 right now between Democrats and Republicans, and with the filibuster, which means you really need 50 votes to get anything done, it's um, very unlikely that the PRO Act in its entirety would be passed. However, certain aspects of the, of the PRO Act, some measures within it, are currently included in this big uh, reconciliation bill that uh, has been under discussion, um, you know, the $3.5 trillion bill, which is probably going to end up being a lot less, unfortunately. Um, but aspects of the PRO Act, including levying serious fines on employers who violate labor law, which would be a big deal because right now, when an employer violates labor law, and that means like, intimidating a worker who's trying to organize a union or firing a worker who's trying to organize a union. You know, that's actually illegal. Employers are not legally supposed to be able to do that. But of course, they often do. And they do it because there's really no major penalties. If they get caught, all they have to do is rehire the worker that they fired. 
and give them back pay for the time that they were gone. But there's no actual like pen, um, penalties, monetary penalties. But one of the aspects of the PRO Act that might end up being included in the reconciliation bill, so it might actually have a chance, would impose fines, penalties of up to between $50,000 to $100,000 in the maximum range on employers that violate labor law, which would be, um, you know, incentive for them to not do that, not try to intimidate people or fire people for trying to form a union. So that could be really important. Um, and there's other aspects as well of the PRO Act that might be included. So there's some chance that some parts of it might actually pass, which would be a big deal. Um, but your other point about conservatives um, often being pro-union, I mean, yeah, many, many people who are in union, well, so, you know, I should back up. Union membership is not based on someone's political beliefs or ideology. Union membership is just based on where you happen to work, if your workplace unionized or not. So people of all different political and ideological backgrounds are union members. And um, yet that is kind of interesting and almost ironic that um, apparently, like you were saying, fans of a conservative commentator like Ben Shapiro are pro-union. Um, I mean, it's on the one hand, it's not surprising because they're actually you know, once the, you're actually a member of a union and you're able to benefit from, you know, the better wages and better conditions, and th and this is, you know, statistically just true that when you compare workers in the same, you know, same industry or same kind of job, but you compare a lot, you know, side by side, those who are unionized and those that are not unionized workers always have, you know, better pay and better benefits. And this is especially true for um, women and people of color, that the, the difference between union and non-union is really enormous in terms of so people who are in a union already understand, and so they're maybe not going to fall for that anti-union propaganda, but still kind of ironic because the whole conservative movement, people like Ben Shapiro and the right wing and, and Republicans, generally speaking, are very um, and I, I mean, Republican actual politicians, not necessarily voters, are very anti-union and very supportive of laws that try to weaken unions, that try to um, financially weaken unions or make it harder to organize them, um, which is probably why, you know, Ben Shapiro was saying all that anti-union stuff in the first place. So, you know, but it's um, kind of funny or perhaps kind of sad that there are people who, um, who benefit from unions and they support unions, and yet they're still kind of supporting or fans of conservatives like, like Ben Shapiro. Um, and this is something else we could talk about, how there was um, a fairly large number uh, or percentage of union members who ended up voting for Donald Trump in 16 and, and voting for him again in 2020. Um, but that, and we can talk more about that, but this part of this speaks to the fact, again, union membership is not based on your political orientation. Um, it's just based on how you work. Now that said, union leadership and unions, the labor movement in general is traditionally and historically been a more progressive, um, kind of movement, a more liberal or left-wing kind of movement. However, the the labor movement in the United States has is probably more conservative than a lot of other countries' labor movements. Um, there's, you know, often in many countries, many parts of the world, a tradition of a kind of anti-capitalist, socialist, or communist, um, or anarchist um, current within labor movements, but not so much in the U.S., especially with the mainstream like AFL-CIO affiliated unions, um, which have traditionally been, you know, tolerant and willing to accept capitalism as it is and not try to like overthrow the system, um, but instead just try to like get a better deal for workers within the system. Um, but yeah, I know I just said a lot there, but I'll stop for now. Yeah. 
I think another interesting thing about unions is I talk to some people and they're like, I'm pro-union. I think they're a lot better in the private sector. I'm not a big fan of public sector unionization. Uh, I just think those kind of people are very interesting. Like they know, they acknowledge the benefits of unions. Like, yeah, unions do give you better pay. They do give you better benefits. But I think if you're working for the government, I don't think you should be negotiating with the government. I think uh, you should be non-union. There should be no questions about that. But like in the private sector where you have a capitalist trying to make a lot of money off you, I think you should have the right to unionize. I've heard that opinion a lot in some more conservative circles as well as some more uh, centrist uh, views of unions. I don't mm -hmm. know what your thoughts about that is. Yeah, um, public sector unions have always been a lot more controversial than than private sector unions. And you can look at the history of this, that much of the private sector, especially like you know, heavy industries, were unionized in the 1930s and 1940s, um, you know, or earlier. But the big, huge wave was around, you know, the Great Depression and World War II. The private sector didn't really have a big wave of unionization until much later, until like the late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, and part of that is because there's been always a kind of um, concern that, you know, the public sector, it's part of, yeah, it's part of the government, state, local, and federal government. It includes public schools um, and other kinds of public accommodations, public transportation, um, et cetera, et cetera, things that are paid for through people's taxes, tax money, and things that provide really essential services to the community. And so there's traditionally been a kind of sense that um, it's, you know, maybe um, too much of an inconvenience for the general public that these, you know, these institutions that exist serve the community to serve the public, like schools. Uh, or university, a university like UIC is in the public sector, um, that, um, you know, if there's a dis labor dispute and um, the workers are demanding, you know, higher wages, then people say, well, that's going to come out of my tax dollars, you know, or it, the dispute gets to the point of going on strike and it means a school is closed down and then parents are wondering, what, what do I do with my kids or public transportation you know, goes on strike and that shuts down and people are wondering, how am I going to get around? How am I going to get to work? You know, it has, it has a labor dispute in the public sector can have really huge ramifications um, in some ways bigger than in the private sector, although not, not always. So it's always been kind of controversial. And so one of the ways, I mean, what's been really um, kind of exciting in the labor movement over, especially the last 10 years or so, and, um, you know, when we think about any kind of resurgence in the labor movement, um, you know, this, this past year or two, we've seen a lot of activity in the private sector, like the John Deere strike that you mentioned at the beginning, um, which is happening right now. But, but for much of the past 10 years, the real movement has been coming from the public sector unions, especially teacher unions. And the Chicago Teachers Union is kind of best example of this. And how one of the ways that public sector unions, especially teacher unions, have tried to um, deal with this kind of general concern and criticism of, you know, public sector workers um, organizing and demanding better, better conditions and wages and going on strike is that they, it's something called bargaining for the common good, where, like we've seen when the teachers in Chicago went on strike, both in 2012 and then again in 2019 it wasn't just about give me it wasn't just about them saying give me a raise you know and better for me it was also about a core part of their demand was invest more money in the schools because this is for the students you know and the great kind of phrase that they use is our working conditions are the students learning conditions so if you want these like a public or any kind of public sector institution actually do a better job of serving the community like they're supposed to do, then you need to have more investments in the public sector. And that's what a lot of public sector unions, especially teacher unions, have been fighting for. 
one of the things um, the teachers union in Chicago was fighting for when they went on strike in 2012 was, you know, just being able to have enough books, um, like textbooks available for their students. When they went on strike in 2019, they were one of their key demands was there to be a social worker and nurse in every school because not every school in, Chica in the Chicago public schools, you know, has a, a nurse or a, or a librarian or a social worker because of um, not enough funding in the schools. And so, and this is especially important just because over the last 20, 30 years, in the United States, there's been such a divestment in the public sector um, with tax cuts on the wealthy and um, spending on all kinds of other, like the military and whatnot. Um, or on policing, not as much money flowing into other kinds of public, public sector goods, public sector services. So when public sector workers in these public unions are waging campaigns for their, you know, for their new contract, they they very intelligently make it not just about what's in it for them, but also what's in it for the wider community. And in that way, they're able to get the broader support like we've seen in Chicago with the CTU, Chicago being able to get majority of parents and community members on their side. And they went on strike in 2012 and 2019, which kind of, uh, you know, historically speaking, kind of unusual because traditionally when teachers would go on strike, uh, it would be very easy for you know, the mayor, whoever's in charge to say, oh, those greedy teachers and they don't want your kids to learn and, and to make parents turn on the teachers union and get angry at them. That didn't really work um, in the 2019 and 2012 strikes because the, the teachers union had framed their demands as part of the community um, and getting people on their side. And that's what, again, a lot of public sector Unions have been trying to do this in recent for the common good um, approach to kind of get past these traditional concerns against public sector unions. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good point in how they tried to bargain for smaller class, classroom sizes, more funding. Mm -hmm. It's a very good strategic approach uh, to show that we're not being greedy here. We're trying to advocate for uh, your child's education. Uh, obviously, um, CT, obviously, I've been inside CPS. I'm currently doing clinical hours in CPS, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of issues in CPS. Uh, I don't know how to solve them. I'm not some magic wizard, or I don't know all the answers, but there's obviously a lot of issues in CPS, and there, there needs to be some sort of reform. I don't know what kind of reform we obviously need. I don't know if the teachers union can accomplish that. I don't know if the administration could accomplish that, but that's obviously uh, another discussion. And, and in terms of uh, labor labor unions, uh, yeah, the John Deere strike. Uh, I did see some, some graduate students from the GEO today. They were, I don't know if they were protesting. I don't know what they were obviously doing, but they said uh, GEO students at work we, we, they don't get a living wage, which is obviously because they live in the city of Chicago where uh, cost of living is relatively high. You really can't live off your stipend. You, you might have to work another job, which is very difficult in grad school. So I thought that was very interesting how you're having graduate students as well as faculty at public universities protesting and trying to get higher wages and organizing. Yeah. Um... Um, I could say a lot of it. So I, I was the two years ago when I, I was still doing my PhD here and I was a graduate student worker. I was uh, very active in the GEO, Graduate Employees Organization, the union of like teaching assistants, graduate assistants at UIT. I was uh, the co-president and we actually went on strike in 2019 yeah, I remember for, that. For, for almost three weeks. Yeah. So I was right at the, in the middle of at the center of all that. Um, we were negotiating a new contract, and right now the GEO is uh, it's negotiating the next contract. And so, yeah, I believe today they were holding a a, a work in in the lobby of University Hall, 
which is um, just to kind of make the labor of graduate workers a little bit more visible. So yeah, it's kind of a protest, kind of a, a awareness raising, and also kind of an organ, an opportunity to uh, bring the members of the union together um, in an activity and to kind of let the rest of the campus community know that um, you know this negotiations for the next contract are happening. Um, the the university administration here and it and other universities not unique to UIC university administrations more and more act exactly like corporations when it comes to wanting to um, um, you know, maximize their revenues and maximize executive compensation in the case of a university like the university president or university chancellor or provost getting enormous bonuses while minimizing the labor costs that includes graduate workers well as faculty especially like adjunct faculty which is sort of what i am right now as a is a visiting lecturer which means i'm uh, i'm only hired on a semester by semester contract instead of like a permanent job and there's um so that there's been a lot of um um precarity uh employment precarity and uh low wages among um academic workers um growing and growing over the past 20 to 30 years. And um, in that same time period, you've seen a lot of organizing of faculty unions and graduate worker unions. Um, at UIC, the graduate worker union, the GEO, has existed since um, first one union recognition in 2004, and then got negotiated the first contract in 2006. And then the faculty union, which I'm a member of now, UIC United Faculty, which includes both the tenured professors as well as like visiting faculty, non-tenured track faculty like me, um, that they, this union, faculty union organized about, I think it was 2014 and got the first contract. That's uh, going on, going off that, uh, the union has definitely benefited a lot of the faculty. Um, you've definitely seen some increases in wages, obviously, some better benefits. So the union is slowly but surely making uh, being pro a professor at UIC just a little bit better. Uh, and so, yeah, and, 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 and absolutely. And the same with the graduate worker union. Um, the raise, you know, when I started as a graduate worker at UIC in 2015, the pay was $16,000. Um, by the time I finished, it was $20,000. And I, from the experience of being in the actual bargaining, of actually sitting there at the table for hours and hours over the course of 13 months negotiating with university administrators, I could tell you that not one penny of those raises was because the university administration like, gave it to us because they were being nice. We had to fight for every every penny um as well as among other kinds of things like um, um health benefits lowering the cost of that for graduate workers and being able to have family members um a big issue among with graduate workers at uic and many other universities is fees um because part of traditionally part of the deal is if you work for the university as a teaching assistant or a research assistant or whatever um that they waive your tuition, which is in the university's best interest. Because if they don't waive the tuition, then you're going to have a whole lot less graduate graduate students because people can't afford, you know, to be coming to graduate school. And then with fewer graduate students, then you have fewer workers, fewer TAs to, you know, be leading classes and leading discussions and doing the grading. So these tuition waivers are really in the best interest of universities. But now more and more to get try to like make sure that they can still get as much money as possible. Um, there's always like new fees being created and put onto the graduate students and undergraduate students. Um, you know, there's a an international student fee at UIC, which until, until about the year 2014 or 15, it didn't even exist. And then all of a sudden it, it was just created overnight and it was something like three, I think it used to be, at least for graduate workers, graduate students, it was like $300. Um, but we, in our last contract, when we went on strike, we got them, we got the administration to cut that in half. 
um, and and do some other things trying to offset fees and not create new fees. But there's a lot of issues. And then with faculty, you're right. It's the same kind of thing. A lot of it has to do with wages. A lot of it has to do with job security. Um, a lot of it has to do with um, shared governance, governance this, this principle that faculty should be able to have a say in how the university is run, which is a traditional thing in universities going back, you know, centuries, in recent years, more, and more university administrations, like I say, they're trying to be just like corporations and have management have all the say and all the power. So there's all kinds of uh, issues there. Um, but yeah, it's been pretty exciting in the last several years, more and more academic workers around the country have been unionizing. This is important again, because of that sort of ideological uh, point that, that I, I kind of brought up before with regard to gig workers, um, you know, being disinclined to want to organize or unionize because they're made to think, well, they they work for themselves and they're their own boss and they're an independent contractor. The same kind of things are often at play with academic workers who are made to think, well, I'm, I'm not a worker, you know, I'm a scholar, I'm, you know, somehow better than, you know, the average worker and unions are not for me, you know, unions for somebody who works in a factory or a coal mine or something. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an intellectual and I don't need that. And so there's, it's traditionally been difficult to try to organize and unionize academic workers, but a lot of that has been Flipping away in recent years and more and more um, professors, adjuncts, teaching assistants realize like, no, like uh, I am actually a worker, an employee. And oftentimes these universities are really um, profiting off of our labor and making a lot of money off of our labor and not uh, providing the nation and, and protections and rights serve. So more and more of us in organizing, fighting back against that. And I'm very proud of the, um, the strike that we did um, in 2019 with the, with the GEO. And um, I have, you know, I'm totally supportive of the GEO right now as they um, are negotiating their new contract. I'm very proud of my own faculty union that I'm now part of. Next year, we're going to start negotiating our next contract. So, um yeah, there's a lot of uh, activity. Yeah, there's a lot of activity. And like one thing I heard today is there's kind of like a divide between workers and academics, obviously. Like uh, one argument I've heard is how can academics truly understand workers? There's kind of that divide. And why do they support similar policies when their interests might not align on some issues? So I think that's like a very interesting point how both of these uh, group, different groups support unions obviously and uh but but for different reasons obviously uh, for factory workers uh or someone working a ups or whatever uh, they obviously it, it's obviously you're doing different work with uh when you're an academic you have a phd you have some sort of certification you've worked a lot intellectually while with ups you're working with your hands you're doing delivery so a lot of people would say oh they're really different. Uh, they're really different, but uh, yeah, there there is some similarities on how you're both kind of dealing with a corporate uh, corporation type mindset and how they don't want to pay you as pay you a lot, and they want to like maximize their profit or bonuses in the case of uh, the executives at UIC, which I think is uh, generally interesting. How there can be some solidarity between a lot of different uh, unions, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, even though the kind of work is different, I mean, all different kinds of work and all different kinds of jobs are different and unique in their own ways, but you can see all, I think more, more than more often than not, there's similar in the, just in the case of the, the sort of, it comes back again to like the power relations and who's being exploited and who's, um, you know, who gets to make the decisions and, whether it's a, um, an academic worker or a UPS driver, um, it, the exact same power dynamics end up being there. And um, I would also add that when we were, when the graduate worker, graduate union was on strike in 2019, um, UPS drivers with the Teamsters here in Chicago were supporting us by 
um, not crossing the picket line and not making um, deliveries um, at UIC during, during the strike, which was really, um, really great that were supporting us like that. And there was solidarity from the faculty union as well, um, supporting us in a lot of ways. But that's, that's an important thing to just to talk about, that even the workers, industries in different sectors and have education levels, formal education in different, um, you know, whether they work with their minds or work with their hands or whatever it is, um, can find commonalities, again, in, the, in terms of the power structure and to be able to recognize those um, similarities and exhibit uh, solidarity with each other is really important. And that's kind of the whole concept of the labor movement and of the idea of the working class as a, as a class for itself, as opposed to class in itself, meaning uh, thinking of the working class, not just as like a group with shared characteristics, but as a group that's united with the same kinds of goals be you know, trying to create a better and more more just society and more equality, um, especially for the working people who would, and working, working people, I know a lot of times people think, hear the word working people, they just think of blue collar workers, but it really means anybody who has to work for a living, anyone who gets a paycheck, anyone who has a W-2 X time, or, you know, in the case of uh, independent contractors, um, so-called independent contractors, I guess it's not a W-2, but anyone who has to work to make a living basically is a, is a worker. And um, being able to show unity and solidarity is really uh, an important thing. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting in terms of working for your next uh, paycheck. While most Americans live paycheck to paycheck too, you kind of, uh, you kind of have that issue too. Like you have to work for your meal and let's say uh, they're not paying you well, obviously uh, a lot of these people have families. A lot of these people have, uh, they might have uh, sick, they might have sick family members. They might, mm-hmm. might be sick themselves. Sometimes people can't leave these certain jobs. Um, they rely on the health insurance. It's kind of really difficult for uh, people to leave their jobs, even with the great exodus, which I think was bound to happen. I just think uh, COVID-19 kind of accelerated it. A lot of people realized, uh, let's say you're working a fast food job and you're you're there, you're ringing up people's orders, you're kind of miserable. You're like, why am I doing this? I'm getting yelled at by customers. I really don't like this job. Is there like a better alternative? And I think COVID-19, where people were staying at home, they realized, oh, I could relax at home right now. It's a lot better. I'm here to recharge. I, mm-hmm. I've heard the theory of um, the boomerang effect where a lot of these people will return for their jobs. Uh, come September, I heard first, now it's October. So like mm-hmm. as a month, uh, they're like pushing it off and still people are looking for people to work. And a lot of these uh, employers are starting to offer $15 an hour paid family leave. Uh, and I think that's uh, very indicative of uh, the uh what's it called uh the great exodus uh where people decided to quit quit their jobs because they realized they were miserable and they weren't getting paid that much ten dollars an hour eleven dollars an hour is not that much to raise a family obviously it's for someone like me uh maybe for a little apartment if i if you were living on your own obviously it would be fine but uh i think the great exodus is is something very essential to the labor movement in the United States right now. Yeah, it's been a really um, um, interesting phenomenon over this past several months or this past year. Um, Yeah, all people quitting, especially in these like low wage service sector jobs, you know, which is, um, I think a lot of people in those jobs really realize more than ever during the pandemic how, how mistreated they are and how exploited they are because on the one hand, you know, they're, they're paid much and they're treated like crap. And, um, and also there's just kind of a general social stigma around, you know, working in a fast food place or, um, or whatever, you know, like it's often like, you know, joked about them. 
people look down on that kind of thing. But then when the pandemic hit, suddenly now they're called essential workers. You know, they're essential to the economy and they're so important. Uh, they have to keep coming to work while other people can work from home or whatever. Um, or in the case of like restaurant workers or workers in bars, you know, just being um, furloughed or laid off because they had to close. Um, but yeah, a lot of people really came to realize how mistreated they are. And um, um, the being able to stay at home and uh, having better unemployment benefits, which you, you probably know that the, the supplemental $300 a week for unemployment was cut off about a month or two ago um, with the idea that this would force people back into those, you know, low wage service sector jobs, but so far that hasn't happened. So it's not just, you know, there's kind of this myth that it's just because people are living off their unemployment insurance and they don't want to work and they're lazy or whatever. And that's really not true. There's a lot more to it. I think it's that, yeah, people want more quality of life. They want better standards at work. Um, I mean, there's always going to have to be, you know, people in um, these kinds of uh, service sector jobs, people working in fast food or people working in retail, these jobs that are not necessarily very glamorous or fun. There's always going to be a need for people in those jobs. And I think the what needs to be done is to make them into better jobs yeah. by paying better and so on. But part of what you, what's, really interesting it stands out to me about this sort of great resignation of people uh quitting and not coming back to work is that it's not um has it's not it's different from the this the um formal kind of labor movement it's not an organized coordinated conscious thing it's not like with a union deciding to go on strike and it's all planned out and it's voted on and discussed and then the decision is made to go on strike. You know, it's not like that. It's just kind of spontaneous people as individuals just kind of doing this thing and or not coming back. Um, and it kind of shows in a way maybe the need for more organizing and late, you know, resurgence of the labor movement and of unions so that workers can really exert the maximum amount of leverage and pressure on employers to actually do better and pay better and have better conditions um, so that it's not just this kind of um, sporadic organized thing that's just sort of phenomenon that's just kind of bubbling up to the surface that people are trying to figure it out, but have it be something that's much more explicit and, and direct and say, yes, this we're doing this on purpose because here's what we want. Here's our demands. Um, that would be, I think, more beneficial to workers in the long term. Yeah, I think uh, speaking of the long run, obviously, I don't know if any labor movements have discussed this automation. Like even at UIC, we kind of see automation right now with uh, with the little carts over there driving yeah. driving around food. I, I think it's kind of dystopian, dystopian. Maybe. Like <laughs> like oh, <laughs> what's next? And you see them and they stop. Oh, it's very scary. I know they're gonna worry they're gonna kill me or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's like very scary. So like <laughs> one of the things that I worry about personally is automation. Is uh, what happens when these fast food jobs, uh, these retail jobs, can be done by a computer? Obviously, where you don't need these people to work anymore. Like I know Andrew Yang, for example, proposed the solution of universal basic income, um, but. I think that's a very scary thing that the labor movement is going to have to eventually take on, whether it be uh, individuals or whether it be unions themselves. I don't know what your thoughts on automation is. Is it going to be beneficial? Is it going to be uh, detrimental? Because obviously I can see a world where automation, we end up in an egalitarian society, but I can also see a dystopia world where automation lets uh, the few, uh, the top 1% continue to build their wealth while generally you have most of the population staying poor and they keep getting poorer, obviously. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, automation is really nothing new. Um, it's been around um, with, at least with like robot kind of technology since at least like the 1960s or so with, especially in the heavy industry and in the auto industry or in uh, um, 
like dock work, dock work, um, unloading ships and stuff like different kinds of, um, robotic machinery, um, doing this kind of, so it's, it's the kind of thing that the labor movement has been discussing and debating for a long time. And even before the kind of robotic automation, the introduction of new technologies and new machines, um, going all the way back to like the 1800s, you know, changed the whole world of work, you know, the industrial, industrial revolution brought significant changes in how, in how work was done and the power that workers have, you know, being able to go from or going from a period of when people would be like skilled artisans, or craftsmen who would affect their craft for years and years and make everything by hand and, and be specialists with their own tools and their own workshops and having a lot of power over their own work to having machine-based factory-based production where no people are no longer in control of their own work and they just have to show up and punch in and create a machine for their boss. You know, that was, that goes back to the 1800s. So this has been a, a longstanding kind of, um, issue and problem among workers and for the labor movement. And I think it, it does really, it goes back to something I said near the beginning of this conversation about, you know, how a lot of times issued questions of like wages and benefits are talked about as if they're just these um, abstract forces of the market of supply and demand. But really, it's all about power. It's about human beings making decisions and who gets to make the decisions and who how those decisions are made and you know, who has the power. And I think it's the same thing with, when it comes to automation, um, you know, automation could be a wonderful, beautiful thing for the human race because it means cutting down the number of hours people have to work, you know, instead of expecting, you know, instead of a 40 hour work week, um, a 20 hour work week, people getting paid the same amount they would if they were working 40 hours, you know, um, or people just not having to do a lot of the drudgery kind of work and have more free time to pursue their lives, their interests, to be with friends, to learn things, to read, to do art and music and travel or whatever, you know, uh, and have let the robots do the work, you know. Um, but it's that would be like something where we would need a robust, a whole different kind of society, you know, one where um, economic security is based on, is a human right. You know, it's not just based on where you work. It's similar, you know, we see this in the debate around Medicare for all, um, how in the United States right now, for, for the vast majority of people, health care and health insurance is linked to your job. Um, and if you don't, if your job doesn't offer health insurance or you happen to lose your job or you're unemployed for whatever reason, then at risk, you risk losing your access to health care. And advocates of Medicare for all say that's a ridiculous and inhumane, barbaric kind of system that health care should be a human right and everyone should just have it just because they should. And that's it. Um, so that kind of a mentality applied to the whole society and the whole economy where um, people should have basic um, economic security as a right. And if the machines and the robots are doing all the work then and generating enough wealth, then that can all be paid for. And people don't have to work as much or as hard. Or, or like I said, they can focus on other kinds of work and pursuits. Um, so it could be a great thing. But if we don't have any kind of fundamental change in our society and do that kind of stuff, then yeah, automation can be really um, threatening if all of our rights continue to be based on the job that we have and um, if uh, if automation is just an excuse to lay people off um, or pay people less money um, and, and it's in order to only benefit the employers corporations so they get all the well all the wealth generated from the robots goes just to the top one percent then that's obviously a would be a bad thing but my opinion is um not to be like afraid of automation on the surface of it but understand that this means that, that automation could be a great opportunity yeah for a much better kind of world if 
power relations change dramatically. That's what Adam. Yeah, automation. I guess I'll comment on this. Automation could be a good thing. Obviously, uh, it could allow more people to pursue the humanities. Obviously, and, and be academics. Obviously, and uh, pursue like history. I know a lot of people who, who, for example, my neighbor. He's an engineer, and he's like, "Oh, I hate. I don't really like my job. I never wanted to be an engineer. I'd prefer to be a historian because I read a lot of history." I see a lot of people like that, but I can't find a job. I think with automation, you might open up opportunities for a lot of people who like to write poetry. They like to write, uh, uh, they like to write songs. For example, they'll have the the free time to do that. There's probably someone sitting at a cash register at a retail store who's like an amazing singer or an amazing poet, and they're just not able to dedicate that amount of time to uh, to to do that, to be able to express their creativity, which I think is, uh, honestly, it's pretty sad, obviously, but with automation, that could be possible, or we could have the dystopian future. So I think that's something that's very interesting. It kind of goes into a subject that I'm going to be talking about that I haven't talked about, but I'll be talking about with Professor Schultz about the general decline of uh, social sciences in universities. Yeah, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not the issue is not really to me, not really automation and technology. It's it's the the power relations and the sort of politics there, and the, the, who you know who make the decisions. That's that's kind of first and foremost. Um, you know, that I guess what I'm saying is, you know, anything related to technology. I think technology is kind of neutral. It's it can be a force for good or a force for evil. It just depends on who's building technology purpose so yeah yeah um, i think we had a really interesting conversation about the labor movement in general uh i don't know if there's anything you want you want to say any final thoughts uh before i end the podcast um not really just that uh this isn't this right now is an exciting time in the labor movement. You mentioned the John Deere strike. That's 10,000 workers. There's also Kellogg workers on strike. Um, hospital workers in California with Kaiser Permanente might go on strike. There was a possible uh, strike of Hollywood, um, you know, film and TV workers that um, right now there's a tentative agreement that might prevent a strike, but it still has to be approved by the membership. So we'll have to see what happens there. But between the, with the pandemic and this great resignation of workers putting, you know, and in big numbers and then unionized workers in the private sector being much more willing to go on strike. Um, and just in general, this is a, a really important um, moment where it's possible that workers in the labor movement could win back a lot of power, um, but it's not like a foregone conclusion. It all comes down to organizing and the strategy and um we'll, we'll just be, have to see what happens and um and not just i don't mean that see what happens as like a um a detached observer but you know pretty much all of us work for a living so we can all get involved um in one way or another organizing our own workplaces or if we already have a union where we work being involved in that union um and that kind of thing it's but I think the labor movement is really a, it's all of our movement, uh, unless you are, you know, a, a multimillionaire or something or a billionaire and the labor movement is your movement. And, um, and I'm really excited to, to study and teach labor history because it's so important and so many insights about how to, um, how to make the kind of um, change that I think needs to happen in this country and in the world. Uh, yeah, it was really nice talking to you. We, I, I obviously learned a lot. I obviously thought it was really interesting to talk about some of these topics related to the labor movement and how it's generally a really exciting time. It could obviously go both ways. It can go towards uh, workers obviously gaining more, gaining more protections, gaining more rights, or it could turn out to corporations uh, continuing to win like they have the past 30 or 40 years. But yeah, it was really interesting. Maybe, maybe uh, the labor movement has uh, some steam left. Uh, maybe we can see a resurgence. Maybe not. 
um, obviously we're going to obviously um, I'll, I'll be watching. Obviously, I know there's not a lot of uh, labor union uh, reporters, but the, the few that that still are relevant, I obviously keep track of. That's how I learned about the John Deere strike and a lot of the other strikes. But generally, uh, do you have any advice of uh, what publications to check out for labor union stuff uh, just to end it off here? Uh, I would say in these times, um, which I write for a lot about the labor movement in Chicago, in these times.com, um, there's also uh, Vice, there's uh, Jacobin, um, Labor Notes, the big one to follow, um, Strike Wave. So all of these, there's Twitter and Facebook accounts that you could follow um, and on and email newsletters that you can get. Um, but yeah, and it's, this is, it's been great talking to you as well. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Uh, yeah, this is the second podcast, uh, technically. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, I'd like to thank Jeff for coming on and bye. Bye.